Well, hello again, and welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And it's great to have you with us here again. And Philip, this week we're going to launch into a new kind of series of episodes. We won't be doing this necessarily every single week, but regularly over the next couple of months, where we frame what we're doing more around a biblical book than around the topics that keep occurring to us and that are current and controversial. And it's going to be the book of Romans. What made you propose that we should do something like this? Well, because the agenda has to be set by God, not by us, is part of the issue. We see the world from our questions, our viewpoints, etc. And then we look to the Bible for answers. When in actual fact, the Bible gives us the worldview and asks us the questions that we need to answer. And so there's a certain back-to-frontness you and I just talking about things here rather than listening to what God is saying. And so I thought, well, we do talk, we do read the Bible, you and I. How's your Bible reading going all right? Not too bad. bad. We do read the Bible. (laughs) And so let's read a book together, so to speak. Uh, We'll pick Romans, it's a great one, and reflect about the world in the light of what we see in the letters of the Romans. I think it's a really healthy thing to do because in our life as God's people, I think both things keep happening and they're both legitimate. So the world keeps meeting us and throwing challenges up in front of us um, and we think, oh, what what am I required to do here? What sort of person should I be here? What what should I say? What should I do? What's, What's required of me as a faithful person in the situation that's just now confronted me talking with this person? And our mind goes back to the Bible. What, what does the Bible say? So it's quite legitimate and right that the world, as we, as we confront life and go through life, the world raises questions for us and, and situations for us in which we know to think, how do we live faithfully and well? And that sends us back to the Bible. But what you're saying is that's not sufficient. We no. want to be driven the other way as well. We want the to be driven well. from the Bible so that we actually come to situations with a whole different frame of mind. But very often the person who sets the agenda controls the outcome. That's right. And so if we are setting the agenda in our Bible reading, we will get our outcome. Whereas if we allow the Bible to set the agenda in our thinking, then we hear God's outcome. Hmm. Which is why in church on Sundays it's, it's absolutely the right thing that just expository passage by passage, and in Bible studies as well, that's our main diet, Um, whereas we pause at other points to think about topics, and sometimes podcasts like ours naturally tend to focus on topics. But we felt it wasn't right that that's all we did, and so I'm glad as well that we're coming back to the Bible to let it set the agenda for a while. I think that'll do us the world of good. But we're not going to go through uh, verse-by-verse exposition. That's not a podcast, that's a Bible talk. That's a Bible study. Now, if you want to read a verse-by-verse exposition, have we got a, a website for you, as they say? (laughs) So if you go across to philipjensen.com, there are some fantastic series on, there's probably more than one on the Book of Romans, and if you want to find your way through the Book of Romans verse by verse and listen to an exposition of these passages as a supplement to what we're saying, that would be a fantastic idea, and uh, we'll put the links to some of those to those series yeah, and to that website in our in our show notes. But today we want to think about Romans more generally and we're going to look at the first half of Romans 1 today. We're starting there. Uh, before we leap into that though, I, I guess we've got to think Romans, what are the issues or problems that are in our minds as we come to this massive book, this kind of central book of the New Testament that sets out the gospel, the gospel of God as Paul says. 
Um, what sort of things should we kind of frame the conversation around? Well, it, it's, it's a combination of the two things. That is, you look at our world and it's a mess. You look at Romans and what's the answer? You see, I mean, you're right. It talks about the gospel of God, but it doesn't seem to be a, a great announcement that's going to solve the world's problems. The gospel of God is that Jesus was born of David's family. And you think, well... So? So? <laughs> that's not what I was expecting. He's risen from the dead. Well, that's good. And so he's the son of God in power. But if he's the son of God in power, why is the world in the mess that it's in? And so what, what difference has it made that Jesus died and rose again when, you know... There's a war in the Middle East, there's a war in Russia, there's a war in Myanmar, there's, there's wars in our, in our home life, there's domestic violence that's increasing, then there's, you know, the unhappinesses of life are everywhere around about us, the starvations that are happening in some parts of the population and the obesity in other parts of the world's population. I mean, so what is God's message to the world because it is about the world. Paul's been appointed to preach this message, this gospel, this proclamation to the nations. It's the one message for all the world. But what's it about? At one level, there are other things we'll come on to in terms of people's understanding or pre-understandings of the gospel. But there's a kind of basic sense in which if I go out with this gospel in my pocket, I've got a sense as I interact with people that, that they don't want to listen. No, that's right. It's It's... Partly, that is part of the problem, which I think we come to. That is, uh, the fundamentals of the problems of the world have to do with what we call sin, that is, a rebellion against God. But that rebellion against God is reflected in, I don't want to listen at all. I, I don't care what God says. It's an irrelevance to me because I'm, I don't believe in God. I don't want God. And, you know, it's as Jesus talks about the casting of the seed... And one ground is the rocky ground. The seed doesn't take at all. Doesn't penetrate even a little bit. But that's, it's not that there's a rocky ground there. It's worse than that, in a sense. I don't want to improve on Jesus' parable, but it's worse than that, in that there are people who actively do not want to hear what is being said. It will shut you down very quickly. Yes. If you start to raise this, because it's it's not part of of the world they want to have. It's not part of the world they see. It's it's no no don't go there. As soon as you talk about it, hand the, the hand goes up, so to speak, metaphorically yeah. or even physically. There's there's a, a, a fascinating quote in the uh, books by by uh, Thomas Nagel, which shows both the the truthfulness of this great philosopher and also the untruthfulness of the philosopher at the same time. Thomas Nagel was a philosopher in New York University um, and, uh, you know, one of the world's atheistic leading philosophers of the late 20th, early 21st century. And there's this quote in the book, which I've got. He says, I'm talking about the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being some strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and are made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. 
I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. That is honest, isn't it? It's terribly honest for a philosopher to say that his own prejudices are deciding how he wants to think. But then it's terribly dishonest at the same time to pretend that you are giving a philosophy of life when it's not philosophy, it's just sheer prejudice. It's desire. I don't want this this way. We talk about motivated reasoning or confirmation bias and all these kind of ways in which the way we think about things is determined by what we want to be the case, by what we've already decided is the case, by what we're motivated to be the case. And this seems like a fairly powerful example of that. Yeah, on a broader issue than just this one man, here is the problem of uh, enlightenment, philosophical materialism, atheism of that order. That is, the postmoderns have seen through it. And they say it's just an expression of your bias, of your prejudice. And so there's this conflict taking place within our society, not with Christians, between the Enlightenment intellectuals and their postmodern children who are blowing the whistle and saying, no, it's just prejudice. And here's an example of the Enlightenment man acknowledging his prejudice, but he still writes books about what it all means. He doesn't therefore resign his philosophy chair on account of having a conflict of interest. No, not at all. I've got got an interest in this being true, (laughs) Yes, and so I will lecture in this way. Of course, a, a Christian could never be appointed to lecture about Christianity as such an institution because they'd be regarded as hopelessly compromised and biased and, have, and presenting their own particular point of view. Yes. But the pretense of enlightenment, the pretense of, of a distance and dispassionate objective thought is kind of exposed here in a way because it yes. never was objective. It's, it's confessed, hmm. which is extraordinary. Hmm. Yeah. So there's the problem of in a sense, not wanting it to be true, the kind of John 3.19 thing that people love darkness yes. because their deeds are evil. They didn't want, don't want to come to the light. But also when you interact with people, when I speak with people about the gospel and, and Romans is about the gospel, you do also encounter not just an unwillingness but also a profound lack of understanding, a profound often misunderstanding of what the gospel is that you have to kind of clear away or clear up before you get to what it's actually saying. Yes, because, again, what you have here in the opening of Romans is that the gospel of God is for all nations, so it's a universal truth for all. The gospel of God is about Jesus being descended from David and risen from the dead. That's the gospel. But if you go out into the street and ask the average Aussie what they think the Christian message is, they'll nearly always tell you, It's about rules and regulations of morality, religious morality, uh, whereby if if you keep the rules, you'll be rewarded. If you break the rules, well, then you'll be punished. But you've got to really break it badly. You've got to be Adolf Hitler or Joe Stalin or somebody like that, you know, because generally, provided you're above average, you'll be okay. And you'll receive a degree of peace about that. So one of the things that I keep encountering is I talk to people about this, a kind of a more recent in the last several decades take on this idea is that the comfort of religion or of faith is a sense of peace and hope that they may regard as irrational and or kind of leap in the dark on our on our part, but they see it as 
at least a vaguely positive thing. We think there's something coming in the future that's going to fix everything up and is going to reward us or is going to take care of everything. And and so there's this kind of, there's a pushing forward into the future of the hope of some sort of heavenly reward or justice or fixing everything up. And it's nice for you. I'm glad that gives you peace to have that hope. Um, but really, I think you're you're dreaming. Yes, you're dreaming. And also, if it's been organised, it's hypocritical. <laughs> it's not. Organised religion, one of the worst things you could possibly have. Yes, is organised. If you have personal faith, well, then we live and let live. But if you're part of organised religion, then you are teaching rules and regulations that you're not keeping and you're imposing upon other people. But when the secrets are led, when the... The journalist speaks truth to power. They will show that you are actually a complete hypocrite because you're not keeping the very rules that you're imposing upon other people. Yes, and that's the very familiar trope in our culture, in television and in movies. The Christian person, especially the Christian minister, but the Christian person involved in a Christian group will very often turn out to be the hypocrite, the abuser, yes. the one who who states these things publicly but not only does them himself, and it usually is himself, but kind of uses his position and those rules as a way of controlling others and as a way of actually getting what he wants. Yes. And so it's a cover and a mechanism for the exercise of your own desires and power. Yeah. And that's a very common way of seeing religion generally, but in our culture, of Christianity. Yes, it's an awful thing, really. But it's also at the philosophical high level, too. See, I read the book on ethics by Peter Singer, the Australian humanist of the year he was some time ago, etc. He'd be regarded as one of the most foremost ethicists of the last 40, 50 years in, yes. in the world of secular ethics. Very interesting kinds of unique views that he's brought into ethical debates, haven't they? Which many of a younger generation follow in his, his veganism and the like. But you see, he, he presents religion as teaching that virtue will be rewarded and wickedness will be punished. And you think for a man of such scholarship to, to, to be so ignorant of Christian understanding, because Christianity, he just calls religion, but within the context of what he's writing, it's not Buddhism or Hinduism, it's Christianity it's, or Judaism from which he ethnically comes. It's not about that. The gospel is about Jesus being descended from David and rising from the dead. But he won't understand that because he's already got in his mind that religion is about morality, it's about ethics, and virtue being rewarded and wickedness being punished. So, you know, at an intellectual level, the community thinks that. At the kind of grassroots level, the community is thinking that. And so they're not actually understanding the gospel even when it's taught to them. I guess the other objection or the other obstacle to get over as we work through Romans and bring the message of Romans to our world and preach it to all nations is this sense that's very common in our culture that if something is old, it's irrelevant. If something is new and current, it must be right and what we, what we latch on to. And you can't get, well, you can get older than this, but it is very old. It is yes. one man writing to a group of Christians in a city nearly 2,000 years ago, that's also an issue, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And so what's this got to do with solving our problems now of uh, you know, domestic violence or, or war or poverty or illness or famine? Or 
overpopulation or the climate warming or... I mean, there's just so many problems that fill our newspapers and our television and our conversation all the time. And you think, he was descended from David? (laughs) What has this got to do with? Anything to solve the problems that we have at the moment. I mean, we have housing problems here in Sydney. We... We have growing mental illness amongst, amongst young people. What, what has this gospel got to do with anything in life? Could it possibly make any difference? Well, it could if the message it brings, that is, gospel is a, is a great announcement. The word means a, a big piece of momentous, important news. If that news, if it somehow diagnosed or touched upon our deepest problems... The things that, the thing that undergirds and is at the heart of all these various kind of awful things that you've spoken about, if if this gospel addressed that, well, then yes, it would speak to us. And that's right. You've used the word diagnosis, which I think is the key word. That is, the symptoms of my disease are what take me to the doctor. <laughs> but while the doctor must address my symptoms and put a Band-Aid on me or whatever it may be, Um, the doctor's job is to diagnose what the disease is that gives rise to those symptoms. Just addressing the symptoms will not solve the problem. And so there are many symptoms that the world's going to muck, like war, like divorce, like poverty, like overpopulation. There's any number of symptoms that we've, we've got problems But what's the disease that has given rise to these symptoms? And just to look after the symptoms, try and bring peace in this warfare, trying to feed this population, they're good things to do. There's nothing wrong with trying to address symptoms. But you'll always have new symptoms coming until you actually address the disease. And so what is the right diagnosis of humanity's problems and how does jesus resolve those yeah this reminds me of the quote and it's one we've got written down here in our notes just so that you don't think i can reel this quote off from memory uh, i've been reading solzhenitsyn recent, recently though um alexander solzhenitsyn the tell great, us who he is before you give he's, us the quote. he's a great russian dissident and writer so in the period from from the russian revolution onwards from the 1920s right through to the 1960s Tens of millions of people were imprisoned by the organs, as they're called, by the apparatus of the of the Soviet state, by the secret police, the NKVD, all these different kinds of um, of bodies. They were uh, arrested, imprisoned, interrogated, and sentenced to time in the gulag, in labor camps. Five years, eight years, ten years, twenty years, and tens of millions of innocent people were put through that meat grinder, as Solzhenitsyn calls it. But who's Solzhenitsyn? He was someone who was himself arrested and put through the meat grinder, or the sewage disposal system, as he describes it in his book, mm-hmm. that, um, that the state had organised to get rid of, of any, any person undesirable or in any way any threat to, uh, to the Soviet uh, regime and that could be anybody not just who had a who'd said something or thought or even thought something or even was in a class of people who might be suspected of saying something it's it's just astonishing to think of imagine the entire population of Australia times two 
over a period of 30 years being arrested, imprisoned, interrogated and sent off to a labour camp for 10 years. You have been reading him because you keep telling us about what he told, but (laughs) tell us about him. Solzhenitsyn um, went through the process, survived it and famously documented it and wrote about it. And as um, as a Russian, a deeply patriotic Russian, he was just horrified by what his nation became and by what was done. And his great aim in life was to expose what was done. But what was so powerful about it was that he saw underneath into the problems of the human heart. Um, His famous quote from the Gulag Archipelago that you often hear in sermons is that the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. You've probably heard that, dear listener, in a sermon sometime. And it's a great line. It was part of a passage where he's saying, why did we do this to each other? Why did certain people end up becoming members of the secret police and the service and doing this to other to their fellow Russians? It wasn't that all the bad people went into that and we were all the good people because we're all good and we're all bad. And the problem underneath was that, as he says in this passage I'm going to quote, that as a nation we'd abandoned God. How about I read the quote? Uh, Over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not have put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. It's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? And it was from a man who was in the midst of it, who saw it firsthand like you and I mercifully haven't. And, uh, I mean, he lived on, I think he died about 2009. At a great age, yes. But he sees that the diagnosis is significantly more important than just the symptoms. I mean, the symptoms were appalling, the way these people were treated in the Siberian salt mines. But the problem lies in the human heart. And the problem of the human heart is to forget God. If you forget God, then indeed you lose that sense of what ultimately is the right, what is the wrong, let alone be able to be changed by God into the right. And so the problem of relational failure with God is the diagnosis of the Bible. And it's a diagnosis of the Bible that Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, pouring out of his spirit actually addresses because it changes people. And if you change lots of people, you then change society. See, our society keeps on thinking it will fix up the problems by more legislation or by putting more in the curriculum of our public schools. But neither of those things actually solve any of the problems because at best they're addressing the symptoms, 
But they're not even doing that very well, frankly. Because law never does. Law never does. I, I've been reading Galatians. You asked me how my Bible reading was going. I've been reading Galatians recently. Right. <laughs> it very much resonates with, with his argument, you know, on a diff, completely different level with the Galatians. Why are you wanting to go back under law? Why are you going want to go back to the weak and beggarly rudiments and elementary principles of the world? As if law ever solved anything. As if by having regulations about what you should do, do this, don't do that, blah, 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 as if that ever really sets you free. It yes. won't. It doesn't do it. And you see, this is what the great importance of this book that came out a year or so ago by, by uh, Tom Holland. Well, it was longer book, than that. It's been around for... Three or four years it's now. It's astonishing it? how quickly time passes. It, it's been around for a few years now. Yes, the older you get, the faster it passes. <laughs> but this book called Dominion. He's not a Christian. He's a historian who's really interested in the ancient world. Yeah. But that's what he's noticed. The ancient world is very different to the modern world. The ancient world was hostile to human development and good and flourishing. It, it was a violent place. But he says, my ethics are not those. My morality is not that. What has happened between the ancient world and today that our whole value system has so radically changed? And his answer is, Jesus was descended from the David. Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus, it's all about Jesus, that human hearts have been so changed that society has been changed so that we now value caring for the weak and the vulnerable and looking after people equally and, and caring for the justice to be established. It's, it's, it's not what the Spartans did, is it? It's not what the Spartans did. <laughs> it's not what the Romans did. It's not... It's not what the ancient world, it's not what the Egyptians did. It's not what anybody did. No. That's his point in Dominion. It's There is no philosophy, there's no culture, there's no religion, there's nothing anywhere in the world that has the values that that we in the West take for granted, such as that every individual person has dignity and importance and preciousness purely on the basis that they are a human being created in the image of God. Nobody else believes that. And that has come out of this gospel of God. Being preached. Being preached and then being put into practice. And it's not just that this has happened over thousand, the 2,000 years. It's still happening today. So there's this f fascinating uh, woman, Ayan Hersey Ali, who's now written an essay called Why I'm, I Am Now a Christian. It's written against, in a sense, or in the light of... The great atheist uh, Bertrand Russell who wrote a book, Why I Am Not, not a Christian. Not a Christian, yes. And she's, she, she grew up as a Muslim and a fanatical Muslim at that and yeah. then became an atheist and a very strong atheist at that, a, a friend of Dawkins and, and Hitchens and people like that. But she has now moved again to being a Christian, she says. And she gives reasons, uh, strange reasons for those of us who have been Christians a long time, uh, she talks about the global problems because she's part of that enlightenment thinking that now sees we have a problem. The global problems of communism and its rise, again, of Islamism and its ter terror that it is bringing into the world, and wokeism, which is undermining and gutting Western civilization. And so she says, how are we going to address these kinds of things. Here's a quote. We can't fight off these formidable forces unless we can answer the question, 
What is it that unites us? The response that God is dead seems insufficient. So too does the attempt to find solace in the rules-based liberal international order. The only credible answer, I believe, lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. However, it's not just the global problems that she sees, it's also the personal ones. For she goes on, yet, I wouldn't be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realisation that atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify us against our menacing foes. I've also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable, indeed very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? It's a profound shift that she's happened, but the change of the individual changes society. And the change of the individual has to do with fairly basic questions, the meaning and purpose of life, which are answered in the gospel of God. And so the relevance issue, it's massive, provided you stop looking at symptoms and ask for the diagnosis. And the diagnosis is the corruption of the human heart, my heart, your heart, everybody's heart. Might be a useful thing at this point to actually read those first few verses of Romans sure. 1. How about I do that? Yes. And... Then we have a few final reflections before we round off. So Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, Paul is the 
the messenger of this worldwide singular gospel, the one message for all mankind. And yet he hasn't shown up in Rome yet. And so he's, he's writing, isn't he, to, to say, well, I do want to come and I am planning on coming. I've often intended to come. I've often intended to come. And then it seems that he's kind of answering an objection that people may have. Yeah, well, he's very good preaching the gospel amongst the you know, in the back blocks of Turkey or somewhere like that amongst the barbarians. But, but Rome? No, yeah, Rome's the centre of the universe. It's the place of culture. It's the centre of the intellectual world. It's, it's like preaching everywhere else in Australia but avoiding Sydney or avoiding Melbourne or avoiding the big city. Yes, and so you know, he's saying, no, no, I'm not ashamed. It's, it's a funny kind of... You would never be ashamed in front of a barbarian uh, amongst the foolish, but amongst the Greeks, amongst the Jews, amongst the wise of this world, you may be tempted to be ashamed of a silly message. But you say, no, I'm not ashamed of this message. Can I ask huh? you something? He says Greeks there, but he's going to Rome. So, so what does he say... Among the yes. Greeks, what yes. does he say? Among the Romans, what, yes, why does he the say? Latins. Yes, what does he say? The Greeks, <laughs> because even a Roman knows that to speak Greek is a matter of civilization, a matter of learning, a matter of education. So, Greek was the lingua franca of the whole of the Mediterranean world, but it was significantly it was the language of learning, and scholarship, and so he's not ashamed of the the intellectual leadership, the cultural leadership of the world. The gospel's not to be ashamed of, he said, because actually this message, this declaration, is the power of God for the salvation of people, for the righteousness of God. The power of God is actually in this message. This message changes the world. <laughs> 2,000 years later... A man who doesn't believe the message can historically write it up in that book, Dominion. That actually, he's right. It has changed the world. It has changed the world. And somebody like Ian Hissey can say, yes, it's changing me right now. And so one of the problems what we have in our world today is I think Christians are ashamed of the message. I think the pressure for the preacher is to speak about domestic violence or it's to speak about the hunger or to speak about the Israeli and Gaza war at the moment. and To speak hey, about the symptoms, in other words. Yes. They are symptoms. There's nothing wrong and with speaking dreadful. about those things. Yes. They're dreadful. They can be addressed. But you can keep on addressing symptoms. You're never going to change the world. But you speak about the human heart and how it can be transformed by this message of Jesus' death and resurrection, ah, then you'll change the heart and the hearts and the society. The cliche is that gospel equals good news, and it's not quite right. It's, it's really big and momentous and, and important news, in a sense, what the gospel, what the word means. But the nature of this news, because it does address the disease, is is wonderful, uh, and it is good, deeply good in that sense. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Philip. Have you ever had a, a lingering medical symptom that no one can get to the bottom of that just goes on and on and on and on and on? And one day you go to the doctor, 
This has happened to several friends and relatives of mine. You go to the doctor and you finally discover that you've actually got something seriously wrong with you and your immediate reaction is relief. Yes. <laughs> because at last someone has told me what's wrong with me. Yes. And maybe then something could actually be done about it. It's not quite as extreme as what you've said, but I had terrible problems with a pain in my foot and ankle. And I went to one doctor after another, and they prescribed all kinds of dreadful, dreadful things for me. Um, they were sure it was gout at one stage, and gout medicines and gout treatments. It was not going to be good. And they just said, one of them said, well, look, we just better check that those x-rays you had a few weeks ago with Right, so I went and had the x-rays again. As I was walking away from the x-ray room, a nurse came running down the road saying, Mr Jensen, Mr Jensen. I, I stopped and she said, you've broken your ankle. You've got a broken bone. You and shouldn't I, be walking on it. You shouldn't be walking on it. And I said, oh, that's, that's terrific. That's the best that's news really I've heard all week. It's all week because we know what it is, we know how to fix it. We, it was... Now, it was a very simple problem. I'd just broken a bone in my ankle and, and it was fixed. It was much better than the alternatives that they'd given me up until that time. But I actually was thanking her for telling me I had a broken ankle and she thought I was particularly... I think she thought I had a psychiatric problem as well. Well, you might have. You may well have. Oh, okay. okay. Thank you for that point. <laughs> but sometimes the accurate diagnosis of the problem, even if it's a much more painful and serious problem than that, is obviously the first step to treatment. And this is what the Book of Romans does for us. It, In proclaiming the gospel of God, it addresses this most serious problem. And we'll go on to this next week. When well, we the next, next week, chapter, the second the half of the chapter really starts spilling out the, the, the right diagnosis, the nature it? of the problem. Yeah. This first half tells us that we shouldn't and could never be ashamed of the answer of the treatment if we no. can reduce the Lord Jesus Christ to a treatment. This announcement of who He is and what He has done, because it is the power of God to address this very issue. Yeah. So, how about you pray about it? I'd love to. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your gospel, your announcement that you promised long ago uh, through the prophets and brought to such a marvellous fulfilment in the birth and death and resurrection of your son, who was descended from David and was raised to all power and authority as your Christ and poured out the Holy Spirit upon your people. And we thank you for this extraordinary message, this announcement of this incredible event that brings such healing and salvation to the deepest problem and need and sickness of our humanity. Um, we thank you so much for it, Father, as we've just started to reflect on it just this week. And we pray that you would make us not ashamed to preach and believe this gospel and live it in all of our lives. And we ask this in the name of your Son, descended from David, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.